service. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Joan Crawford are insane. She threatened the director of the FBI when she wanted a copy of one of her old stag films destroyed. She accepted an Oscar that wasn't hers for the sole purpose to get revenge on her co-star. She was in the room while a presidential assassination was allegedly plotted, and she may have been involved in the death of her fourth husband. She wrote her daughter out of her will before she knew the kid was about to permanently ruin her legacy. A legacy that was full of great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Clark and Kanicki performing The Friendly Rivals in 1909. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Steve Gordon's Arthur. And why would I play you that particular slice of cop between the moon and New York City cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on September 16th, 1981. And that was the day that Mommy Dearest was released in theaters, a movie that had a devastating impact on Joan Crawford's reputation forever. On this episode, stag films, dead presidents, stolen Oscars, a ruined legacy, and Joan Crawford. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season eight, Hollywoodland. Joan Crawford was a dancing girl under contract for MGM when she first met the director of the FBI. 
That was 50 years in the past, back when she was a nobody. It was 1971 now, and though she had her share of ups and downs, Joan Crawford was a bona fide movie star. But she wasn't in J. Edgar Hoover's office on movie star business. She was in the nation's capital in her capacity as the brand ambassador for Pepsi-Cola. And Hoover, well, he never passed up the opportunity to have his photo taken with celebrities. The two shook hands and the cameras flashed. And then Hoover leaned in and whispered in Joan's ear. He'd recently come into possession of an old film of hers, a real rarity. Joan Crawford knew what film he was talking about. She gritted her perfect teeth and she smiled back. And then she leaned in even closer. She told Hoover that unless he wanted to see old photos of himself in the company of certain gentlemen hit the front pages, he'd see to it that the film in question was destroyed. FBI agents who worked under J. Edgar Hoover knew the way to their boss's heart. It was simple. Bring Hoover porn. And by the time he died in 1972, J. Edgar Hoover had amassed quite possibly the largest pornography collection in history. Let that sink in. The longtime director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation had a legendary porn stash. Under Hoover, the FBI made vice and so-called sexual deviancy high priorities. Anything seized in a raid made it to the director's desk, which meant finders keepers. The choicest pieces of smut went home with Hoover. His most prized possessions were nude photos and films of celebrities. Elvis Presley, Charlton Heston, even Eleanor Roosevelt. A rare copy of The Masked Bandit, the 1934 porno that a homeless and broke Frank Sinatra made when he was just 19. And at least one of the stag films Joan Crawford made before she signed with MGM. When Joan Crawford turned 18, she left her oppressive mother and alcoholic, abusive older brother in Missouri to get her start in show business as a dancing girl on the traveling circuit, then working under her birth name, Lucille Lessier. The term dancing girl meant a lot of things in the 20s. And Lucille was known for doing the Charleston, for wearing skirts as short as the clubs would allow, and for going without underwear whenever she could get away with it. She was also known for being open to offers by men. She saw Bill slip into her garter belt as she danced on the table at a supper club, and she was savvy enough to know that it wasn't just money. It was an invitation. She once spent the night in a Detroit jail after being arrested with a man in a hotel. Like a lot of early stars sorted past, the mugshots and fingerprints disappeared once she made it big. But copies of her arrest report found their way into her FBI file, along with the film Hoover hinted at when the two met at his office decades later. The film was most likely The Casting Couch, a notorious short from 1924, in which, allegedly, a young Joan Crawford, then still going by Lucille Lassier, plays an aspiring actress who gives a producer a blowjob in order to land a role. It wasn't autobiographical, yet. Stag films were made on the cheap and shown at parties and peep shows. They were produced in tiny print runs and circulated exclusively on the black market. Rumor has it, Crawford, as Lucille, made a couple of these. Films with names like Velvet Lips, Coming Home, and She Shows Him How. She was trying to buy herself a ticket to Chicago, where there were more opportunities for dancing girls. 
the money from the films was enough to get her off the second-rate vaudeville circuit and into the game. The game was swank clubs like the Oriole, where the dancing girls doubled as prostitutes. The game was spotting a Broadway producer in the audience, stealing a tray of drinks from a waiter, carrying those drinks over to said producer, and strategically spilling a martini in his lap. The game was getting on your knees and enthusiastically patting the man's crotch dry with a napkin, and then looking up at him with those big, wide eyes and telling him you were a capable dancer and capable of very many other things, too. The game was asking this producer if he wanted to audition you, putting enough emphasis on that word so he knew what he'd get if he said yes. Lucille played that game, and she played it so well that she landed a private quote-unquote audition with a big producer and left for New York with him the same night. She worked Broadway reviews and then back to the clubs for the late-night crowds, crowds that included a talent scout from MGM, a brand-new movie studio in Hollywood that bragged they had more stars than there are in heaven. But this game, this life, it was far from heaven. In fact, it could be downright hellish. In the fall of 1924, Lucille was back home in Kansas City, Missouri, bedridden, recovering from a back-alley abortion to get rid of an unwanted pregnancy. To add insult to injury, her brother had learned about the stag film she'd made and ratted her out to their mother, who cursed her out as trash. Her mother could call her whatever she wanted. Lucille was gonna make something of herself. And so it was no surprise to her when the telegram arrived. That Hollywood scout back in New York had liked what he'd seen after all, and MGM was offering Lucille Le Sieur a six-month contract. They just had to do something about that name. Fellow star and former dancing girl Tallulah Bankhead had her own name for the newcomer, the girl in the fuck-me shoes. But when Lucille Le Sieur was rechristened Joan Crawford, the public didn't get to hear hot takes by the likes of Tallulah Bankhead because MGM delivered a whitewashed version of their new starlet's path to Hollywood. She was just a wide-eyed innocent from the Midwest who had succeeded on looks and charm alone. But as Crawford became a huge star of the silver screen, first in the silent era, and then as the talkies took over, she was still privately renowned in Hollywood circles for her sexual exploits. It's just that the most sordid parts of her past continued to be successfully repressed. And that's what MGM had fixers for. Who is this? The man on the other end of the phone didn't respond to that question. He just repeated his demand. $100,000, cash. That's what it was gonna cost Joan Crawford to get her hands on a copy of The Casting Couch, that infamous stag film she'd starred in almost a decade ago. It was 1935. Joan was one of the top actresses in Hollywood. She was supposed to be relaxing on her honeymoon alongside husband number two. But with more money came more problems like this blackmailer on the line. She hung up and called MGM. The studio ran some numbers. They decided they could stand to settle for 25 grand and a stern warning. And they had just the guy to deliver the money and the message. Handsome Johnny Rosselli was in charge of Al Capone's Los Angeles branch, a branch that had strong ties to the movie industry, especially MGM. On behalf of MGM, Rosselli met with the blackmailer who, it turned out, happened to be none other than Crawford's tattletale brother. What a little shit. Rosselli made it clear that he was gonna walk out of the meeting with either the film in his hands or Crawford's brother's balls in his pocket. And the message was very loud and very fucking clear. So clear that Rosselli got the film 
and kept the money. MGM held on to the negative in case it came in handy at a later date. And then Joan Crawford didn't hear a peep about the casting couch again. Not until that meeting with J. Edgar Hoover in 1971. The one where he made that veiled threat that she cut down with a threat of her own. Just because Hoover was Hoover, it didn't mean he didn't have a weakness. Joan Crawford knew where the director had spent some of his nights, including one night in Dallas eight years earlier, on the eve of one of the greatest tragedies in American history. The party at the home of Texas oil magnate Clinton Murchison, just a little outside Dallas, was packed with political movers and shakers of the past, present, and future. Murchison had major political connections. He was also mobbed up. Eight years earlier, a Senate committee found that the Genovese crime family was behind 20% of Murchison's business. Handsome Johnny Rosselli, the mobster MGM sent to retrieve Joan Crawford's porno from her brother, he was a regular guest at Murchison's ranch. But Rosselli wasn't at tonight's party. Tonight's guests included J. Edgar Hoover and his aide and lover, Clyde Tolson, along with future president, George H.W. Bush, widely suspected to be a CIA operative at the time. And then there was former Vice President Richard Nixon, in town to speak to a convention of carbonated beverage bottlers. Nixon's guest at Murchison's party was Joan Crawford. Nixon and Joan were photographed together earlier that day at the Bottlers' Convention. Joan, of course, was at the industry event as brand ambassador for Pepsi-Cola. A reporter asked Joan if she and Nixon would be attending a luncheon the following day with President Kennedy, who was scheduled to arrive in Dallas in the morning. Joan said she'd been invited, but no, she didn't think either of them would attend the president's luncheon. Murchison's party was at full tilt when current Vice President Lyndon Johnson stormed in. He brushed by both Joan and his mistress and straight into a closed-door meeting with Richard Nixon, George H.W. Bush, J. Edgar Hoover, and Clinton Murchison. When he thundered back out into the living room a few minutes later, the Vice President, LBJ, demanded a drink. The ice in his whiskey clinked as his hand shook, and his mistress asked if everything was okay. Everything's fine, Johnson said, just fine. The next day, November 22, 1963, just before noon, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated on Dallas's Dealey Plaza. And on that day, one, two, three, four presidents were present in Dallas. The assassinated President John F. Kennedy, the next President Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president after that, Richard Nixon, and finally, George H.W. Bush. Now how's that for a coincidence? When ever in the history of the world was somebody as high profile and powerful as the president of the United States assassinated while three other future presidents were in the same city? Yet, somehow, we don't talk about it. Fast forward two years later. The only reporter who ever interviewed Jack Ruby, the Dallas nightclub owner who shot and killed accused Kennedy assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, 
was found dead of an apparent accidental overdose in her Manhattan apartment. As cops surveyed the perfectly arranged scene, there was a knock on the dead reporter's door. It was the reporter's lunch date for that afternoon, an old friend, Joan Crawford. Hold up. You can't talk about the Kennedy assassination without sounding like you need a tinfoil hat. For the record, this particular version of events, the Murchison Party theory, as it came to be known, is from LBJ's mistress, Madeline Duncan Brown, who told her tale of this fateful night decades later. And look, no one is saying, not me anyways, that Joan Crawford killed JFK. But how the hell does Joan Crawford end up at a party in Dallas the night before the Kennedy assassination, again, with Richard Nixon, J. Edgar Hoover, and Vice President Johnson, along with, oh well, by the way, future president and current CIA operative George H.W. Bush. Some would say, by killing her fourth husband. Getting a final headcount on Joan Crawford's husbands is tough. There were at least two alleged shotgun marriages before she ever signed with MGM. But let's take Joan at her word and say her first husband was Douglas Fairbanks Jr. You might've heard of his father, Douglas Fairbanks Sr., one of the biggest stars of Hollywood's golden age. Fairbanks, along with his wife, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, and D.W. Griffith, founded United Artists. Daddy Fairbanks was less than thrilled when Doug Jr. took up with a chorus girl named Joan Crawford. Girls like Joan were coming to Hollywood by the bustle back then, and they were simple props in the eyes of someone like Fairbanks. They were set dressing, who doubled as prostitutes on a weekly contract. It was made clear to Doug Jr. that Joan Crawford was not welcome in the royal court of established Hollywood at the time. But it wasn't this snub that brought on the end of Joan's first marriage. She didn't give a shit what the old guard thought of her. Joan continued to sleep with casting directors for parts, and she carried on a long-term affair with another newly arrived star named Clark Gable. Like Joan Crawford, Clark Gable came from poverty and was willing to use his sexuality to advance his career. And before Joan met him, she heard about Clark Gable from her best friend and frequent co-star William Haynes, one of the more openly gay stars in early Hollywood. Haynes told Joan about an encounter with Clark Gable in the men's room at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. He reported that while Gable might not yet be a huge star, he did have a huge dick, and Joan just had to find out for herself. So then the couple first appeared on screen together in 1931, and their affair lasted through several marriages for both stars. It was such common knowledge that the head of MGM told the couple to quit fucking around or it would cost them both their careers. So without Clark Gable as an extracurricular activity, Joan Crawford was unhappy in her marriage to Douglas Fairbanks Jr., but she couldn't see a way out. Warner Brothers Studios, which had Doug Jr. under contract, noticed that every man who hung around Joan Crawford was either gay or bisexual. And they started to wonder about Doug Jr. To make sure no one questioned his virility, the studio made up a story about a husband suing Doug Jr. for, quote, alienating his wife's affections. Doug had to pay the husband off with $50,000 of Joan Crawford's money. It was all a lie, but it gave Joan a chance to get out of the marriage and sneak in a fuck you to Doug Jr.'s royally stuck up parents. They'd forbidden their son from marrying a slut, but he was the one who turned out to be the cheater. Or at least that's how the story went in the papers. Joan Crawford very publicly announced she was divorcing Douglas Fairbanks Jr., kicking him out of the house. And the announcement came the same day that Warner Brothers announced the first big starring role for Betty Davis. Coverage of Betty Davis's movie was buried by Crawford's news, and her movie bombed after a week, and Betty Davis never forgave her, but I digress. Husband number two was Francou Tone. 
an actor who had been openly living with another man. And perhaps to avoid the press learning about his sexuality, Tone married Joan Crawford. It was on their honeymoon that Joan received the blackmail call that led to MGM unleashing handsome Johnny Roselli on her brother. Joan and Tone made repeated efforts to have a child, but failed, and then they soon divorced as well. So Joan swore she'd never marry again. She could no longer get roles as a young sexpot and decided instead to recreate herself as a mother. She adopted a daughter through a Las Vegas baby broker, which back in the 1940s was just another way of saying human trafficking for rich people, and proceeded to make a very public show of what a fantastic mom she was. It didn't end well, and we'll get to that. But the picture wasn't complete without a husband. So she married again and adopted a couple more kids. And the show marriage, that didn't work out. Joan kept the kids, and she remained single for almost a decade, during which her film career and her finances waned. In 1955, however, she married Alfred Steele, the CEO of Pepsi-Cola. Joan Crawford was box office poison by this point, and the press called out the marriage as gold digging. Three years later, Alfred Steele was standing at the top of the stairs in the house he shared with Joan Crawford. He felt a sudden tightness in his chest, and the pain traveled up to his neck and out to his arms, and he could feel his heart begin to beat fast and hard, like it was gonna pop out of his chest. He tried to steady himself on the railing, but the room spun. He was dizzy, lightheaded. Alfred Steele fell forward, and his head smacked one of the stairs, and he went ass over tea kettle, hitting another stair and then another stair, all the way down until his limp body slumped on the floor below. And by all accounts, Alfred Steele was a healthy 59-year-old, and Pepsi's own doctors gave him a clean bill of health. And now he was splayed on the floor of his home, dead from a sudden heart attack that came out of nowhere, which is where his wife, Joan Crawford, found him. At least, that's what she said at first. Later, she'd said she found him in bed. The inconsistency of Crawford's story is suspicious enough, but throw in the fact that she waited 10 minutes before she called anybody. And rather than phone an ambulance, she called the doctor at Pepsi, who couldn't do much in the way of emergency medical services. Whispers of homicide never really went away. Joan's own daughter later accused her of killing Alfred Steele, and that the heart attack story was just BS. But there was no evidence to prove this theory. Steele's body had been long cremated with no autopsy performed. But Alfred Steele's death meant that Joan Crawford took his seat on Pepsi's board of directors, along with a hefty annual salary of $60,000, which then put her in Dallas in November of 1963 at a bottler's conference with Richard Nixon, who then took her to a private party hosted by Clinton Murchison, where a group of men may or may not have conspired to kill the president of the United States. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Joan Crawford never traveled with less than 30 suitcases, even for a short location shoot like this one in Baton Rouge. She had enough dresses to attend three formal galas a day and enough booze to keep her sauce for the whole shoot. It was not an easy amount of luggage to transport, but luckily for her, she was Joan Crawford. The type of Hollywood actress who simply arrives and has everything taken care of for her. Except, here she was, standing in the Baton Rouge airport, wearing a heavy fur coat, sweating out the drinks she'd thrown back on the plane, 
surrounded by her designer suitcases and no one was coming to meet her. On set, meanwhile, somewhere in the Louisiana swamp, Betty Davis was cackling. The shoot was for Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, originally titled Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte. It was planned to be a sort of sequel to Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which had become a camp classic by playing up the rivalry between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. But the state of their feud before Baby Jane was nothing compared to what it had become by the time they were set to shoot the sequel. And this time, only one diva would emerge as the victor. There are plenty of reasons Joan Crawford and Betty Davis hated each other. First was that day back in 1933 that Warner Brothers made their press push for Betty Davis as the next big thing. The one I told you about where Davis's news was buried by the announcement of Joan's divorce from Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And as a result, Betty Davis's debut film tanked and she blamed Joan Crawford. Betty Davis then tried to seduce Crawford's second husband, Frank Couton, while shooting a movie in 1935. Joan swore the attempt was unsuccessful, but a producer on set said Betty Davis always left her dressing room door open so everyone could see her blowing Joan Crawford's husband. I swear this is true, I'm not making it up. At least that's what they say. Joan Crawford twice took roles that Betty Davis passed on and spun them into Oscar-worthy performances, first with Mildred Pierce in 1945, for which Joan Crawford won the Oscar, and then again with 1947's Possessed, for which she was nominated. Then, there was 1952's The Star, in which Betty Davis plays a has-been actress who happens to be a depressed alcoholic. The Star was written by a close friend of Joan Crawford's. At least she was a close friend until she asked Joan to talk her daughter out of marrying a man she didn't approve of. Joan flashed back to the disapproval she suffered from Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s high and mighty parents. And instead of talking the girl out of it, Joan arranged the entire wedding held it at her own house, and didn't invite the girl's parents. In retaliation, the now former friend wrote the star as a scathing send-up of Joan Crawford. And Betty Davis jumped at the chance to take the role. Joan Crawford and Betty Davis spent decades bashing each other in the press. And Betty once said that Crawford was a movie star, but that she, Betty Davis, was an actress. The clear implication was that Joan Crawford might have the looks but Betty Davis had the talent. Joan clapped back at this when the press asked why Frank Couton had chosen her over Betty romantically. Joan said Tone thought of Davis as a good actress, but he never thought of her as a woman. Joan added to a friend that Tone might not be interested, but she herself might, quote, give Betty a poke if she was in the right mood. And this got back to Betty Davis, who later refused to make a film about women in prison with Joan Crawford because it was, in Davis's words, a dyke movie. So it must have been a surprise to Betty Davis when she stepped off the stage after a 1962 Broadway performance of The Night of the Iguana and saw Joan Crawford waiting for her. Neither actress was at her peak. Betty Davis was parlaying her talent into a Broadway career, but it had been a decade since she'd had a Hollywood hit. Joan had been floating from studio to studio, making B-movies and living off Pepsi's carbonated tea. Neither seemed to have what the studios wanted anymore, and both felt they'd been shoved out to sea with plenty of movies still left in them. Crawford, however, had a way back. She had a script that she wanted Betty Davis to see. It was about two former actresses who end up in a bitter and ultimately fatal rivalry. It was the perfect vehicle for the two stars. But taking the roles didn't just mean admitting they were washed up. It meant embracing it. 
There was no money up front. The producers offered generous percentages of the box office receipts. So if they were going to make any money, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis had to make Whatever Happened to Baby Jane a massive hit. The studio wanted to show the press daggers drawn on set, but Joan and Betty kept to their dressing rooms between shoots. The flare-ups came on camera. During a fight scene, Betty Davis actually kicked Joan Crawford in the head. A later scene called for Betty to hoist an unconscious Joan out of bed. And before the shoot, Betty told Joan not to just lie there. Betty had a bad back and couldn't lift Joan's dead weight. So Joan Crawford strapped on a lead belt under her costume for the shoot and blew out Betty Davis's back. And by the time they were doing press junkets for the film, the rivalry was raging as hot as ever. Betty Davis grinned and giggled as she talked about throwing Joan down a flight of stairs. And but the biggest jab came once the Oscar nominations were announced. But whatever happened to Baby Jane was a hit, but only Betty Davis was nominated for Best Actress. Joan Crawford reached out to every other nominated actress. She told the nominees that if by any chance they didn't want to bother going to the Oscar ceremony, she would be honored to accept the award on their behalf. Anne Bancroft, nominated for The Miracle Worker, was performing on Broadway the night of the ceremony. She told Joan it would be a big help to have someone there to accept the award. On the night of the Oscars, when the name of the winner was called, Joan Crawford walked to the stage to accept Bancroft's statue while Betty Davis sat stewing in her seat. Whatever happened to Baby Jane's success didn't lead to bigger roles for either Betty Davis or Joan Crawford, so in 1964, they decided to try to recapture the same magic with Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte, a film that was Baby Jane with the roles swapped. This time, Joan would torture Betty. But Betty set out to make Joan's life a living hell before the camera started to roll. She was the one who canceled the cab that was scheduled to pick up Joan at the airport. She also canceled Joan's room reservation and liquor order. And she had a Coke machine installed on set. Remember, Joan was still the global ambassador for Pepsi. It all became too much for Joan Crawford. The shoot had barely begun before she flew back to LA and checked herself into a hospital complaining of a mysterious respiratory ailment. Months went by and the shoot had to go on with or without Joan Crawford. It wasn't a conspiracy or a blackmail or revenge. This was business. Joan Crawford found out she was fired from the movie when she heard it announced on a radio, and she lay in her hospital bed. With her eyebrows painted on in perfect half-circles and a wig of flowing brown curls, Faye Dunaway pursed the muscles around her mouth together just right. Someday she held this expression for hours until her face ached with the effort. She stood in the closet and looked down at the little girl. Faye Dunaway had recently adopted a child herself, although for years she claimed she'd given birth to the boy. She was using her new role as adopted mother to fuel this part channeling those emotions into her performance. But before she did, she had to twist them into something hard and cruel. There were days she worried she'd get home still in character. And there were days she left the set convinced that the ghost of Joan Crawford was following her. But today, Faye Dunaway was immersed in the part. Her performance ended up shredding her vocal cords. 
She opened her mouth and screamed three words that would eclipse Joan Crawford's entire 40-year Hollywood career. No wire hangers. Many people think that Joan Crawford's psychotic aversion to wire hangers goes back to one of her botched abortions when she was still Lucille Lassier. Joan's adopted daughter, Christina, whose memoir inspired the movie, insisted it went back farther than that. She claimed that when Joan Crawford's stepfather abandoned the family, that her mother, Joan, took over a dry cleaning business and set her to work, hanging an endless stream of other people's clothes on an endless stream of wire hangers. There's dispute as to whether the scene happened at all. Christina Crawford's memoir, Mommy Dearest, was published after Joan Crawford's death from liver cancer in 1977. But Joan's fans insist none of it is true, and that Joan Crawford was a devoted mother. Even rival Betty Davis said Joan didn't deserve such vile treatment. Christina Crawford was the first kid Joan Crawford adopted. The back alley abortions Joan had in her wild days had left her unable to carry a child, and the state of California had deemed her unfit to legally adopt since she was between husbands at the time. In 1940, she went to that baby broker I told you about in Nevada and scored a kid who would complete her new image. She knew she was too old to play bombshells and sex pots. She needed to sell herself to Hollywood as wholesome, and she needed a kid as a prop. Eventually, she needed five. In her memoir, Christina Crawford paints her adopted mother as a physically and emotionally abusive alcoholic. She wrote about night raids where she was dragged out of bed and beaten for no reason, about how Joan Crawford would invite photographers into the house on the children's birthdays and on Christmas to shoot pictures of happy kids surrounded by presents, but then take all the presents back the next day and force the kids to write thank you cards for gifts they no longer had. She wrote about the night her mother tore up all the dresses in her closet because they were hung on wire hangers. But she doesn't say anything about their later relationship. Christina tried for a while to make it as an actress, and she asked her mother for help getting parts. Instead, her mother went to producers and told them that Christina didn't have the emotional maturity for major roles. Christina, however, landed a part on a soap opera called The Secret Storm in 1968, playing a 24-year-old housewife. In October that year, she had to have emergency surgery. Without informing her daughter, Joan Crawford told the show's producers that she could fill in for Christina. For four episodes, the 60-year-old film icon played the role of a 24-year-old while her daughter recovered from surgery. Ratings for the show went through the roof. Just before her death, Joan Crawford wrote Christina out of her will, citing, quote, reasons which are well known to her, unquote. Some speculated Joan Crawford knew about the book Christina had been working on. But while her mother canceled her inheritance and briefly stole her biggest role, Christina Crawford ultimately wrote Joan Crawford's legacy in pop culture. Joan Crawford is now remembered for three words she might not have even said, and then for all of her films, sex, and legends. Three words screamed over a story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Batlands.
Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.